Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Welcome to week two of our series entitled, This is My FBC. Man, I uh, remember one of Golf's immortal moments came when a Scotchman demonstrated the new game of golf to President Ulysses S. Grant. So the Scotchman took and he got the ball and he placed it on the tee and then he took a real big old swing. Of course, the club hit the turf And it sent dirt all over the president, but the ball still remained on the tee. Again, the Scotchman swung, and uh, again, he missed, and he did this several times. As a matter of fact, the president waited through six times. He had never seen this game, and then he turned to the Scotchman. He says, well, listen, there seems to be a fair amount of exercise with this new sport, but I fail to see the purpose of that little ball. Well, it sounds like the way I golf. But when it comes to First Baptist Church, let me kind of tell you where we're headed. If we don't understand our purpose, we're going to spend a whole lot of energy and exercise really accomplishing nothing and not making the real connections that we need to make. You see, last week we looked at our mission. We kind of looked at the purpose for why does First Baptist Church exist. And here's what we said We said that FBC exists to embrace great commandment love, which fuels great commission living. If you remember, we talked about how that sometimes we get Matthew 22 and Matthew 28 kind of reversed. We get this great commission that we're supposed to go and make disciples of all the nations. We get that ahead of the great commandment, which says to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we're trying to bring that back around to say that we have to embrace this great commandment love, and then that fuels our great commission living. We talked about, if you remember, the place that we start is Jesus said to love our neighbor as ourselves, And we put everybody kind of up here to show you that our first neighbor that we start with is the one that we're either married to or directly in our family. And then it spreads to our kids or our closest friends, and it goes to the church, and it goes to the community, and then it goes to the country, and then it goes to the continents. And here's kind of the way we've kind of summarized, the way that we kind of say what we're saying around here, and that is this. We must keep first things first at first. Well, this morning, I want to take us back to a message that I preached over the first three Sundays that I was here. Sometimes people wonder, Uh, Man, where are you headed? Well, I'm headed the same place I was the first Sunday I came here. I haven't changed. I'm just as true to what I came to do as as when God called me here. But I want to take you back to those messages simply because I want you to understand the why behind what we're doing. I want you to understand the theological underpinnings of this message of embracing great commandment love, which fuels great commission living. And so we have to kind of go there today. So Here's kind of the way that I would say the sermon in a sentence is kind of this. In order to hang on to our mission, our mission has to be hanging on the right thing. In order to hang on to what we're doing, we have to be hanging on to the right 
things. So hear me. I want you just right now, if you can, I wonder if you just stop. Anything that you're doing, and I want you just to listen very carefully to the next statement that I'm going to say. If we don't get the Bible right, nothing else is going to matter. Are you with me? If we don't get this thing right, then nothing else is really going to matter. That's why this is of utmost importance. So with that, I wonder, if you just stand with me, I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to read to you the great commandment. I'm Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 40. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can open that. You have a phone, that's great. It's going to be on the screen here behind you. But out of honoring of God's Word, I'm going to read for you Matthew chapter 22, 36 through 40. The Bible says this, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the great and foremost commandment. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now I want everybody to read these next few words together. You ready? Here we go. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You see, last week we looked at verses 36 through 39 of that text. This morning I want us to zone in on verse 40 that says, those words you repeated, on these two commands depend or hang the whole law and the prophets. You see, Christ said that everything kind of hangs on this. Everything depends on this. Everything must be considered in relation to this. And what's he talking about? The way we love God and the way we love people. And what he's going to tell us is, is every single book of the Bible, every command, every scriptural principle hangs on the nail of loving God and loving one another. So an important principle for us to understand in kind of unpacking this is simply this. Scripture has both rational meaning. In other words, what does it say? What does it mean and how do I apply it to my life? It has that, but yet it also has relational significance. In other words, how do I love God and love others? Here's the deal. Most of the time, we usually only focus on that top part. We only focus on studying the Bible and teaching the Bible to figure out what it says to people. We want to know what it means and we sometimes get around to application. But I'm here today to tell you that the whole point, Jesus says that everything hangs upon loving God and loving people. So going back to the text that we read, the most incredible thing that we need to kind of focus on is the significance of Christ's words. Christ says not only do these, these commandments constitute the nail on which the rest of the Scriptures hang, Here's what Christ tells us. They also provide a framework for how we should interpret the rest of the Bible. It's not that these two are just kind of out there. This is, this is the framework. This is the lens by which we look through every single verse of Scripture. Christ's words reveal how influence and relevance returns when Scripture comes alive through relationships. Here's what I would say to my, my, my people that are kind of the scholarly nature. Christ seems to argue for a relational hermeneutic. 
In other words, what I mean by that is, is Christ says, hey, the way that we properly understand what God says, the principle of studying and rightly dividing God's word, the principle of hermeneutics, is through a relational hermeneutic. His words suggest a principle of interpreting Scripture, and here's kind of it said differently on the screen. We must both explore the objective meaning of Scripture and experience the relational significance of it. In other words, if all I ever walk away from a Bible study or a sermon is, is that kind of, hey, I'm smarter now, but we've missed the, the experience of being in right relationship with God and with others, we've missed the whole point. So let me help you understand this better by exploring the larger context of what Jesus said there on these two commands, depend or hang the whole law and the prophets. Because we can't just take a little word out of its context. We have to make sure that we understand it in its fuller context. And this is where I'm going to show you the relational hermeneutic that Jesus is, is teaching shows up. So if we just look at that word hangs and we look at it through the rest of Scripture, just a couple of places this morning, one of them would be Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, the text reminds us of the precious gift of redemption, right? That God has paid for our sin by dying upon a cross. Surely, surely it's important to look at Golgotha. It's important to see Jesus of Nazareth hanging there on a cross. But if we're not careful, we get too focused on well, what type of wood was the cross. How much did the cross weigh? How tall was it? When did it happen? Was it through, his, the, through this part of his hand? Was it through that part of his hand? What part of the, we, we get all that kind of stuff and we miss the relational significance. And the point is, is that Jesus is hanging on the cross. It's a man. It's Jesus. It's a person. It's the Lord. He is there because of his great love for us. And he's trying to get us in right relationship with him so that we can be in right relationship with other people. You see, Christ seems to argue in Matthew twenty-two forty 40, that we have not finished the biblical process of interpretation until we have fully looked at, yes, what does it mean, but how does it mean in relationships with people? Matthew 18, 6, the Bible says this, another place. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck that he be, and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. So imagine the scene described here in the text. You see a man with a millstone hung around his neck. And with that scene in your eye, you cannot focus simply on the millstone's objective rational meaning. If we just did that, we would miss relational significance. Imagine the absurdity to looking at the text and saying this. What's a millstone? How much does it weigh? How old might it be? Where might it have come from? Those are great questions. But if we just focus on those alone, we will miss the critical significance of the text that we're looking at. The significant issue there is that the millstone is hanging around a person's neck. To, to miss where the millstone is hanging and whom it is hanging upon means that we miss the complete relational significance in the text. This is about loving people. So Christ's declaration in Matthew twenty two forty 40 reveals that if 
We face a similar, a similar challenge as we interpret Scripture. We often only think about the rational meaning and we miss the relational significance. But Christ's word, he says, hangs or depends upon loving God and loving people one other place. And that's in Acts chapter 28, verses 3 through 4. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them in the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began to say to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. You see, in this, port, in this passage, it's certainly important to notice that a poisonous serpent came out from the fire. But to focus upon that serpent, what kind it was, how long it was, would be trivial in trying to understand the relational significance of the text. A snake is hanging on a man's Man. And that man is the Apostle Paul, and he's there to love those people. So in this passage, it's certainly important to notice those kind of things, and we have to keep going back to asking ourselves over the text of Scripture, how might this text encourage my love for God or empower my love for people? That's what Jesus is saying when he says, all Scripture hangs on these two commands. So, going back to the message that we started with last week, the church in America has lost her influence and she has lost her relevance to the culture in which we live simply because here's what I think has happened. We have focused too much on rational truth and not enough upon relational experience. So therefore, we've got a lot of people who want to tell other people the right things to believe, but we don't know how to love lost people. And so what I'm trying to tell you today is, is simply this. The church loses influence and relevance apart from Scripture's relational purpose. If we don't give back to Scripture's relational purpose as Jesus said it was, no wonder we no longer have relevance and we no longer have influence. Remember last week I said the church has lost all that because we reversed Matthew 22 and 28? Well, here's a place we see it again. If we don't get this right, that the point of Scripture is to love God and love people, you and I would just keep swinging and missing the ball. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Removing relational significance from Scripture results in harm, not help. Imagine what might happen if you remove the nail that holds a mirror on the wall in your home. If you just kind of went through your home and you just started pulling nails out where all your pictures and mirrors are well, you would see very quickly that everything would fall and shatter into pieces on the floor. Now, if a mirror that you had hanging by a nail fell to the ground and it shattered, if you picked up a piece of that mirror, would you still have a mirror? Yes, you would, but you wouldn't be able to see as clearly as you did before. Because without the nail supporting the mirror, your view is now distorted. Without the nail, you aren't going to be able to see the image as you used to see it. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. You see, they pulled the nail out and the mirror fell and broke. And then they pick up a piece because after all, it's still a mirror, but it kept them from seeing clearly. They seemed to be able to see only certain parts of God's truth. They were masters at picking up one piece of God's mirror with an incomplete and distorted view and look for others who weren't living in alignment with the piece that they particularly had. So for example, they'd pick up the piece that said, well, the, the Bible says that you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. And then they'd go looking for people breaking that law because that's the point, right? We just want to harm people with the word of God. 
And they'd find the disciples picking grain on the Sabbath, and they started rebuking Jesus. Well, Scripture tells us that Jesus' disciples were passing through the grain fields, and the disciples picked some heads of grain, and the Pharisees asked the Lord, they said, Hey, Lord, why are they doing which is unlawful on the Sabbath? Well, the religious leaders were looking for someone who was not living out the command to keep the Sabbath holy. So here's the question. Did God command that we observe the Sabbath and give honor to the Lord? Absolutely. Were the Pharisees correct in their study and knowledge of this truth? Absolutely. They understood the rational purpose and they embraced the behavioral purpose, but they missed the relational purpose of the truth. They neglected to see that the command to keep the Sabbath must be interpreted in the context of loving God and loving people. So then Jesus responds to them by recounting the story of King David and King David's men. And Christ reminded the Pharisees that when David and his men entered the house of God, they ate the consecrated bread, which was forbidden because they were hungry. Jesus tells them that loving God and people meant that the application of that command about the bread and the Sabbath could only be fulfilled in accordance with the purpose of the command, which was to love God and love people. In other words, Jesus takes the mirror and he rehangs it back upon the law and the prophets, which are doing this, saying that we need to love God and love people. Jesus said in Mark 2, 27, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He reinterprets it through the lens of loving God and loving people. Again, the Pharisees removed the nail, right? The the mirror fell and broke, so they picked up another piece that was on the ground, and they said, hey, you should not commit adultery. And then they go find this woman caught in the act of adultery, and they're condemning her. But Jesus rehangs the mirror again upon the law of loving God and loving people. He's with this lady, and and he doesn't stone her. He doesn't condemn her. And like I've said before, Jesus gets on the ground with her. And Jesus begins to write something in the sand. If we're not careful, we'll spend our time trying to figure out what he was writing. The point is not what he was writing, but where he was at. He's on the ground because that's where she's at. He applied the command according to the purpose of loving God and love people. So therefore, he said, listen, I know that you are very alone. I know that you're very afraid. I know that you have to be embarrassed. You've been taken advantage of. Therefore, he let her know that he loved her and that God loved her. And then he dealt with her sin. You see, Here's what I want to teach you today. If we misunderstand the relational purpose of truth, we will misapply the relevant and influential principles of truth. If I misunderstand even the rational part, I will never get to the relational part. And the relational part is what Jesus is always after. You see, if we remove the nail and forsake the relational purpose of loving God and loving others, then all people will ever feel is the harm that comes when we misapply God's word. They will not see what Jesus is saying or who he really is. They won't even see the relevance of the word. And Jesus helps when when dealing with the Pharisees. Jesus revealed the problem with their knowledge and their relationship when he said this in John chapter 5. He said, you examine the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. 
And it is those very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. See, you've searched the scriptures and you search them, but you've missed me. You've missed the relationship with the one who wrote it. So that tells me this. If we miss the relational purpose of God's truth, we will miss a relationship with the one who wrote it. If you miss this understanding of loving God and loving people through the scriptures, you're going to miss the point of it. It's not so that we can be smart. It's so that we can be right with him in relationship. So if the word of God is boring to you, if it's filled with a bunch of do's and don'ts, if it seems really old to you, that's because people have used it in your life to condemn you because somebody removed the nail. And I'm here today to tell you that it's alive and it is able to bring us in the right relationships with people and with our God. So let's just look at this another way, okay, as we kind of end our time here together. Let's just quickly take another familiar passage of Scripture and reinterpret it in light of this understanding. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Very familiar passage to most people. All Scripture is what? Inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. So from this, let's just kind of flesh this out. Here's the first thing I want to show you from that text, and this is this. Scripture has a doctrinal purpose. Scripture definitely has a doctrinal purpose. It says that it's been inspired by God. That literally means God breathed. Theopneustos, theo means God, theology is the study of God. Pneuma, you've got a pneumatic mattress, you know that that's something that's full of air. This has been God-breathed, God-aired, this word. It's God-breathed, it teaches us what's true, immovable, unchangeable, and eternal. This book that we've got right here and that you've got in your hands is the very word of God. It's inspired by God, meaning that all that is from and through the Holy Spirit is of God. It's not man's thinking or man's ideas. It's inerrant. That means it contains no errors about anything that it states. It's infallible, meaning that it will never lead anyone astray in anything that it says. Thus, it can teach us, and it is profitable, it says, for doctrine. Yes, doctrine, the context of teaching, that deals with the rational beliefs that we're to come and know about. So the purpose of Scripture, yes, one of the purposes is for doctrine. It provides us a boundary, like Acts 4.12 that says this. We need to know this. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name among heaven by which we what, can be saved. That is a doctrinal truth. Scripture was given for that. The Word of God sets a boundary for our rational belief. It tells us correct doctrine. It tells us that salvation can only be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. To go outside of that boundary condemns me in sin. That's one purpose of God's truth. Secondly, Scripture has a dutiful purpose. It has a dutiful purpose. Notice that the text says it's profitable for reproof. That word means to reprove something that's wrong with proof of the wrong. God takes his word and shows you that what you're doing is wrong and he proves it to you through the Holy Spirit. And then it says it's profitable for correction. That's the word epinorthosis, which means to restore to a proper condition. It's where we get our word orthotics. It means it's how the word we use when we set a bone in a cast. In other words, when we get broke because of sin, the word of God comes back and puts us back in alignment. 
That's the purpose of God's Word, and you could say it like this. Not only is the Word of God help me with the right belief, but it also tells me about my right behavior. Scripture has a very dutiful purpose. It tells me not only what to believe, but now how to behave. So that's why we find texts like Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but if there's any good word for edification, according to the need of the moment, say that so that it will give grace to those who hear. Listen to me. God's word puts up another boundary over here and tells us that we only speak things that are beneficial, that we shouldn't get into gossip, that we shouldn't get into slander. That would be to get outside the boundary of God's word. And when we do, we get into sin. So that's God's word. It's the purpose is to inform our behavior, not just our beliefs, not just our doctrine, not just this. It helps us understand what my duty is. We have to remember that these purpose and boundaries are there to get us on a path. And what is that path? It's the third purpose of truth. And it's the forgotten purpose, I like to say. Thirdly, Scripture has a devotional purpose. He says it's useful for training and righteousness. The word training is the word we get pedia and the word pediatrics from. It's the idea that we have to get children on the right path. It's the idea the Word of God is like a parent teaching, loving, correcting, shaping one's life. But for what purpose? The text says for righteousness. That's God requiring what He requires of us to do right. But why is that? So that we could be complete, He says. Qualified to perform, able to function, that we would be equipped, adequate, proficient in what God's asked us to do. But what has God commanded us to do? To love Him and to love people. This word is given so that we can be fully equipped and adequate to have an intimate relationship with the one who wrote the word and with the people whom he loves when they encounter God's word. The church, listen to me, must not only believe right, and the church not only has to behave right, but the church has to be in right relationship with God and people. See, these boundaries were given as boundaries and they're direct us on a journey staying in the middle of being in right relationship with God and with people. Right belief, hear me carefully, hear me carefully, right belief and right behavior are essential, but they are not sufficient, church. They're not sufficient. This is critical because not sufficient because the purpose for truth is not only help me to believe and behave, but help me to love God and love people. If people can't see that I am living and experiencing a right relationship with God and that my beliefs and my behaviors are tainted in and saturated in love, then no wonder they won't listen to me. They say, well, hey, you believe in Jesus. You say you do, and you say you're supposed to be kind to your wife, but I see how you treat her, and I see how you talk about her. You say you go to church all the time, but I never really hear you talk about this man Jesus like he's real while you're here at work. I hear you telling me about what I'm doing wrong and what I should believe, but I rarely actually hear you ever talk about Jesus in your life as you actually have a real relationship with him. Matter of fact, I really don't know how you're really loving people here around the office. I know you're here to get a check and you're really good at your job, but you see, the forgotten purpose of truth when restored brings fresh relevance to people and it's what they're really looking for. 
The forgotten purpose of truth is for the Bible to be lived out experientially in relationship. So many of us look daily to the Bible for what to believe and how to behave. An irrelevant religion misses the fact that the Bible was not written simply to tell you how to behave and what to believe. It was written to teach you how to love. And there is a stink sharp difference. So in your Bible studies, yes, you ask, what does this text say? What does this text mean? What does this text mean for me? But can I ask you to please keep going further? Ask, how does this text help me be loved or love God? And how does this text help me then love people out of the overflow of how he's loved me? I've had Elizabeth draw me a little chart here. Here's kind of what we're saying. God's word over here sets a boundary for me to believe in doctrine. God's word sets a boundary over here for me to behave in my duty. Yes, but it's so that I could be in a devoted relationship with him and with people. That's the point of God's word. We've got to see that in order to live out this mission of First Baptist Church, in order to be people who embrace great commandment love that empowers and fuels great commission living, you've got to see this is how scripture tells us how we're to live. So we exist to embrace great commandment love, which fuels great commission living. Here's something said differently. You've heard me say this before. Listen to me very carefully. Go to the next one. Rules about beliefs and behavior without relationships always lead to rebellion. I'm just going to tell you guys. You can teach your kids the things of God all day long, but if you don't have a deep relationship with them, they will rebel. Rules, rules without relationship always lead to rebellion. That's why God says, first of all, this is about relationship so that then I can give you the rules. Said positively, if we go to that, rules about beliefs and behavior with deep relationships lead to relevancy. Now people are like, oh, okay, well, that matters to me because it's said within the context of love. Lastly, very quickly, Scripture also has a demonstrational purpose. Verse 17, he says, so that you could be equipped for every good work. Now let me show you the connection to relevancy. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says this way, your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, when people can't see the love we have for each other, the love that we have for God and for other people, when they can't see that, they can't really connect and glorify God. But when they see our light and the way that we love one another, all of a sudden they can give God glory. The Bible and the church become incredibly relevant to people who are looking for love. When this happens, the church gains relevancy and influence, and we begin to see what happened in the first century. I was reading my Bible this week, and I came across a passage, man, that, that just absolutely just nailed it. <laughs> no pun intended with our series. But Romans 13, 8 through 9, here's what the Lord spoke in my heart. He said, Steve, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor, what does it say? has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, 
it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think I'm off base. I don't think that this understanding and moving our church in this direction is off base. I think it's what the Bible says. And I want us to go there. So in order to hang on to our mission, our mission has to be hanging on the right thing. And we're going to hang it on this interpretation of Scripture. So as we close, let me lead you through something that I think might be beneficial. And I just don't want you to leave here hearing a lot of head knowledge. I want you to leave here having an experience with the truth because that would be the point. Amen. So, Jeremy, I wonder if my man could come and Sarah, my precious daughter, would you come? Are you playing for this? No. Would you come up here just for a moment and play for me anyway? Jeremy, you guys come up and be ready. So we're going to do two different things. Is that all right, Heidi? We're going to do two different things here. I don't want to confuse y'all and throw y'all under the bus, but you can come on up here and get ready. Say, you just play something pretty for me right here, sweetheart. Or just sit there and look pretty. Either which way, it's going to be all right. Let's bring up Romans chapter 8 just for a minute. I want us to kind of read this for a moment, okay? The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 33 through 34, who... Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised. And what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? He's at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, there's only one. And he didn't choose to condemn us. He chooses to pray for us. So I wonder right now, if you just, you don't have to, this is up to you, but I wonder right now, would you just kind of close your eyes with me and form a mental picture with me? I mean, would you go with me right now in your imagination and would you envision a courtroom? You see, the, the words Paul just used were legal words. We still use them, right? Who will bring charge against you? Who will condemn you? But, but I want you to be in this courtroom, and I want you to feel the intimidation by all those around you because they are filing charge against you. I want you to begin to look around and see the faces of people who have spoken nasty things about you. They've been harsh to you. They've been cruel to you. They've abandoned you. They've abused you. They've neglected you. And in this courtroom, you're going to be tried. Now suddenly, I want you to imagine Jesus entering into this courtroom. You see his flowing robe. You see his feet, they've got sandals on them, and now you look up to his face and you see his beard. And rather than Jesus taking his place behind the judge's bench, Jesus stands by your side. Jesus puts his arm around you and gently kind of presses you to the ground to kneel with him. 
Now, would you allow Jesus to begin praying your prayer list? Right now in this moment, would you hear Jesus pleading the Father for the needs in your life? Would you begin to hear him pray the deep desires of your heart before the Father for you? Now he turns to you and would you hear him say this? Hey, where are those who accuse you? And I want you just to kind of look up into the courtroom because now everybody else has left. Every one of those faces filled with condemnation has disappeared from the room. Each person who's ever had anything negative to say about you has vanished. Everyone who had responded with neglect or abuse or abandonment is gone. And now hear these words of Jesus over your heart. Neither do I accuse you. The only one who could accuse you or condemn you is praying for you. The only one that's equipped to judge you does not. He simply chooses to love. I wonder right now, in this moment, would you just give him praise? And would you just love him? Because he who had the right chose not to. Instead, he went to a cross to pay for it. Would you just love him right now? Would you just thank him? Would you just spend some time loving him for what he's done for you? I could have spent a lot of time talking about condemnation. But unless you kind of experience that relational significance of that, the idea of condemnation will just kind of go over your head. That's what we're trying to accomplish. Is that we understand what those words mean, but we have to experience it in relationship. That's all we're doing. We're not falling off the deep end. We're just saying we need to have more fresh encounters with the Jesus who wrote this book. He's alive. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If the Jesus who went by loving people in the first century is not showing up today loving people in the 21st century, we've got a different Jesus. And I want you to know him and experience him in deep, authentic relationships. We have to get the Bible right if we're going to get the rest right. So as I lead us to a time of invitation and some other people are going to begin to make their way down here, they're going to be here to receive you and they're going to be here to pray with you. Can I just speak to another group of people here in the audience today? You see, that text talks about who will bring charge against God's elect and those are the people that have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus. Can I tell you, see, Jesus Christ came to the earth the first time for forgiveness. 
And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he came into the world, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. John 3.17 says that the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that it was condemned already. He came to set it free. So I need you to understand that Jesus Christ is not in this room today to bring condemnation, and neither am I. Because the truth of the matter is you and I are already condemned. We're already separated from God. We're already guilty. We're already, it's already been established that we have broken God's rules, broken God's heart, broken God's laws. And as a result of that, you and I are guilty before God. Now listen to me. If you were to die in that state, you will experience hell for the rest of eternity. Jesus came so that you didn't have to do that. Jesus Christ came knowing that we're condemned, knowing that we're sentenced to death. And he came to die in our place and he takes our sentence for us. He serves our time, if you will. He goes to death row for you and me. And he goes to a tomb and he gets up on the third day and he says, now, listen, I've paid your price. I've taken your condemnation and now I want to offer you freedom. And he stands here today, not as your judge, but as your savior. One who loves you beyond your wildest imagination and he wants to give you life. If you have never received that, Today's a great day. Today is the greatest possible day of your life if you have never trusted Jesus and you want to today. So I'm going to say a prayer. And if you want to do business with the Lord Jesus, if you want him to come into your heart and forgive you and make you new, and you want to hear forgiveness rather than condemnation, then you can say something like this. I wonder if you just join me. If this is you, pray this from your heart, not really from your head. This is about relationship, right? So you just say something like this. Jesus, today, I realize that I'm separated. I know that I have sinned. And I know that I have no hope of ever being forgiven apart from you. Jesus, would you, would you forgive me of all my sin? Would you come in and cleanse me? Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sin. That you were buried and that you were raised again to give me life. I choose you, Jesus. Save me. Thank you that you do what you say. I trust you. I believe you. I thank you for your promise to me. Now may I follow you the best way I know how. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you said a prayer like that, I'd love to talk to you. If you didn't and you'd like to, we'd like to talk to you. If there's any other thing in your life going on you'd love to pray about, anything else going down, shaking off, man, I don't care what it is, you just need some help with, we'd be down here to receive you. So I wonder if you just kind of rise your feet and I think we're going to sing a little bit here, right? And as we sing, you come and we'll be here. So church,